Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. As mentioned in my little announcement I did a few days ago, I have some new recording equipment. This episode, though, is the last one that's been recorded on the old equipment. I'll be starting with the new stuff from those episodes recorded in the new year. Thanks very much to all those who gave some feedback on how the sound quality was with the new equipment. Seems that it's okay, so I'll be ploughing ahead with it. So, anyway, chapter 124, White Death of the Saracens. The Macedonian dynasty was going strong. A series of good emperors had stabilised the borders, brought peace and prosperity to the empire, and implemented a just and fair code of laws. Romanus II, son of Constantine Porphyrogenitus, became emperor without debate on his father's death in 959, and he was a true Macedonian. Unfortunately, though, he was only 20, but his father had given him everything he needed to be a good emperor. Romanus, though, was more interested in having fun and hunting. Fortunately, there was someone around who he could let govern for him. Sadly, though, that person was his wife, who was just an innkeeper's daughter. Again, fortunately, she turned out to be pretty good at governing, even though she had no experience or skill in military stuff. She got around this well, though, because she knew a man who did. Nikephorus Phocus was a superb soldier and was very religious, but he was not particularly pleasant. Leoprando Camona met him and left a wonderful description. He is a monstrosity of a man, a dwarf with a flat head and tiny eyes like a mole. He has a short, thick, grizzly beard and a very short neck. He looks a bit like a pig and has short bristles on his head. He has a fat belly, small legs and is dressed in a robe which is old and foul-smelling. You would not like to meet him in the dark. He also says that Nikephorus was rude and loud and didn't get on well with people. It seems that this was all true. But, and it's a very big but, he was a superb soldier. And Theophano had decided it was time for the Imperial Army to do something big. Nikephorus Phocus was given a large force and told to go and retake Crete. As we know, Crete had been captured by Arab pirates during the reign of Michael the Amorian and was known as the Pirate Caliphate. Nikephorus set off with 307 warships and many smaller ships which were equipped with Greek fire. In July 1960, the great general landed his troops on the island. There were many soldiers from the empire, but also Norsemen and Russians who were very good in battle. Most of the island was retaken quite easily, as the Saracens were chased all over it and killed. Nikephorus decided to leave the remaining Saracens in the island countryside alone for a while, because he wanted to attack Candia, the capital of the pirate caliphate and a very well defended city. If he took Candia, thought the great general, then he could mop up the rest of the island easily. The imperial army laid siege to the city. They completely surrounded it on the land side, but couldn't block the seaward side. The Arabs sent desperate messages to their friends in Egypt for help and supplies, but none came. Sieges are hard things, and after a few weeks the morale of the Imperial Army and that of the Arab defenders was very low. Nikephorus decided to do something about it. He would improve the morale of his troops and make the Arabs feel even worse. So, how did he manage that? Could he manage to make his own men feel better and the Arabs feel worse? Well, yes, he could. Every day... He and his friend Athanasius went round the camp and spoke to virtually every man. The general inspired his men, telling them they would all be rewarded and they were doing this for the empire and for God. Somehow the troops began to feel better and morale rose. Next, Nikephorus ordered the heads be cut off all the Saracens the army had killed. Every day, a few at a time, the heads were catapulted over the wall of the city, 
Inside Candia, it seemed it was raining heads. Anyone who walked through the streets of the city was in danger of being splattered by a blood-stained head. It was both scary and dangerous. Not surprisingly, morale in the city fell, and after nine months, the Imperial Army battered their way inside. The rest of the island gave up, and Crete was back in Imperial hands for the first time in 135 years. Nicephorus returned to Constantinople and had a huge celebration in the Hippodrome, but pretty soon he was off east to join his brother Leo and his nephew John Samiskis in attacking the Saracens. The city of Aleppo was retaken yet again, having been taken back by the Saracens a few years earlier. The emir of the city was forced to run away, and Nicephorus started the journey back to the capital with wagons full of treasure. I think it's worth taking a moment out to look at the great Syrian city, given what's going on there at the moment and what's happened to it over the last few years. I'm recording this chapter on Thursday the 15th of December 2016, as the fighting and human suffering in Aleppo makes headlines across the world. I talk of bloody battles and fighting and killing a lot as I run through these chapters, but the fact it was all so long ago seems to make it more palatable and less real. The situation in Aleppo today is very real. Aleppo is one of the world's truly ancient human places. Damascus is often cited in pub quizzes as being the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Aleppo, though, was more important than the current Syrian capital much earlier. It's known to have existed in the 2000s BC, when it was being described as an independent kingdom. It passed through Assyrian and Babylonian hands, before being taken over by Alexander the Great in 333 BC. After the wars of the Diadochi, Aleppo, now known as Beroea, was part of the Seleucid Empire. After briefly passing into Armenian hands, it was conquered by Pompey for the Romans in the 60s BC. It remained in the hands of the Romans and then the Byzantines for hundreds of years, before being fought over by the Byzantines and various Islamic empires. We will hear a lot more about it as our story goes on. After 1566, Aleppo became part of the Ottoman Empire, where it remained until that empire collapsed. After being under French rule for a few years, it was briefly turned into an independent state until the formation of the modern Syrian state. Aleppo has always had a fierce rivalry with Damascus, including making bids to be the country's capital. As we all know, Aleppo has been the site of fierce fighting in the Syrian civil war from 2011 onwards. Just this week, the city has been the scene of devastating fighting and unimaginable terror as the Syrian army have reasserted control over it. It is not the role of this podcast to make any comments on the current political situation, but the fate of Aleppo seems deeply sad. The city has been home over thousands of years to pagans, Jews, Christians, Muslims and those of many other religions and political views. Before the civil war, it was still ethnically and religiously diverse, being mainly Sunni Muslim but also having a Christian population of over a quarter of a million, more than 10%. It has a vast cultural heritage, including architecture from the Roman, Byzantine, Seljuk and Ottoman periods. It is also a city of over 2 million inhabitants, making it the largest in Syria and one of the largest in the whole region. Many of the population have been killed or have fled. Some of the greatest buildings and monuments from this most important and ancient site have been destroyed. The fate of Aleppo is shameful and reflects badly on the whole world. Human suffering is human suffering, whatever the cause, and we should all take a moment to reflect. I hope there are better times ahead for this great city. When Nicephorus Phocas returned to Constantinople, despite his triumphs there was no celebration. By the time he arrived in Cappadocia, 
Nicephorus had been given the tragic news that the Emperor Romanus II was dead. The young man had died in a hunting accident aged just 24. His three-year reign had been a successful one, but he'd not done any of it himself. he just enjoyed hunting and having a good time. He left two sons, just very small boys, called Basil and Constantine. Yet again, the legal emperors were too young to reign. There is some suggestion he was poisoned by his wife, but this is unlikely. Theophano took control. There was one man who could be trusted to keep the boys safe until they were old enough to become emperors, and also be trusted to keep the empire strong. The empress wrote to Nicephorus, asking him to return to the capital, where she threw the best triumph since the days of Heraclius for the great commander, who was given the nickname the White Death of the Saracens. With Theophano's blessing, Nicephorus was declared Basileus. Everyone was happy except the chamberlain, Joseph Bringas, who was an enemy of Nicephorus. Bringas wrote to John Simiskes begging him for help and offering to make Simiskes the emperor. John Simiskes was loyal to Nicephorus and immediately brought the letter to his uncle. Bringas was soon defeated and Nicephorus returned to Constantinople and married Theophano. This must have been a strange marriage. Theophano was in her early 20s and Nicephorus in his 50s. Theophano was fun-loving and Nicephorus was only interested in God and battles. Theophano was beautiful and Nicephorus looked like a pig. Still, the boys were protected and the empire had a strong emperor, so it may have been a strange marriage, but it was a useful one. Nicephorus' focus was hard as nails. He was completely honest but could be cruel and had no pity. He was also mean and loved money. On the other hand, he was full of energy and turned out to be very good at governing his empire. The new Basileus was, as we know, a soldier at heart. Like a few others before him, he just wanted to go and have some really good battles. He appointed John Simiskes as domestic of the schools, the overall commander of the army in Anatolia, and told him to march off to have another go at the Saracens. John was as brilliant a general as Nicephorus and was very successful, and pretty soon the emperor joined him and they went conquering together. In 965, Nicephorus and the army arrived near Aleppo yet again. The Saracen army looked at the massive imperial force and, very frightened indeed, tried to negotiate. The emperor was not at all interested in talking though, he was interested in fighting. He completely ignored offers of money to go away and smashed his way into the city of Tarsus, capturing it easily. Just over the sea from Tarsus was the island of Cyprus. Many years before, the emperor Constantine IV had agreed to share ownership of Cyprus with the caliph. The empire was now, thought Nicephorus, much stronger than it had been then and it was time to take the island back. In 965, he landed on Cyprus with his well-trained and powerful army. The Muslim defenders hardly put up a fight and it was brought back into the empire as a completely new theme. Nicephorus was not as successful in the west though. As we know, he was a great soldier, but he was a rude and unpleasant man. In 927, Romanus Lecapanus had agreed to pay the Bulgars a tribute to keep them from attacking the empire. When, in 965, envoys from the Bulgars arrived in Constantinople to collect their cash tribute, Nicephorus swore at them. You and your people are hideous and filthy beggars, triple slaves and dogs. He then sent them back to Preslav with no treasure. Pretty soon he was marching into Bulgar territory with a small army, but he didn't have enough troops, so he paid the Russians to attack the Bulgars instead. Later he changed his mind and supported the Bulgars against the Russians. Further west, Otto, the Holy Roman Emperor, had invaded imperial territory in Italy. When he failed to capture Bari though, he sent our old friend Leoprand of Cremona to Constantinople to talk peace. 
Otto offered to give back what he had taken if the emperor allowed one of Romanus II's daughters to marry his son. Nicephorus was having none of it and demanded the return of Ravenna and loads more territory. This was clearly never going to happen. When some envoys from the Pope did not even call Nicephorus Emperor of the Romans, he had them, and Leoprand, imprisoned. So, Nicephorus had managed to upset the Bulgars, the Russians, the Pope and the Western Emperor. Soon, he began to upset his own people. The wars he was waging in the East were expensive, and he needed to raise taxes to pay for them. His brother Leo had been caught trying to charge lots of money for wheat during a famine, and it was soon rumoured that the Emperor was plotting to kill Basil and Constantine. He was blamed for a bad harvest, quite amazing since the poor weather was not really his fault. He was blamed for sacking his nephew, John Somiskis, from his job as commander of the army, which was definitely his fault. Then, just for good measure, he upset the church. He stopped military heroes and other rich people from leaving their wealth to the church when they died. Monks should be poor, he said, and the church didn't need their money. It got so bad for the poor Basileus that people would insult him in the streets and sometimes threw stones at him as he walked by. Nicephorus tried to do what he thought would make the people happy. He held massive games and pretend battles in the Hippodrome. This normally went down well, but a rumour went round the emperor was going to punish the people for throwing rocks. The people tried to run away, but too many of them tried to get out at the same time and lots of them were killed in the crush. This just made poor Nicephorus even more unpopular. All this unpopularity was no good, thought the emperor, and he decided to go off conquering again. His aim was to completely defeat the Muslim armies who kept threatening to take over Armenia. He marched into the little town of Manzikert and smashed the Muslim army to pieces. The province was completely liberated and under no more threat of capture by the Arabs, so Nicephorus, who didn't really want to go back to Constantinople where nobody really liked him, turned his armies and marched south into Syria. The brilliant general retook the cities of Emesa, home of Julia Domna, and Edessa. These cities had been at Arab hands for a long time. The greatest victory was still to come though. In 969, Nicephorus and the imperial army reached Antioch and decided to lay siege to the city. One of the imperial spies learned that there were some towers which could be entered quite easily and the city may be taken by surprise. One night, after a heavy fall of snow, something not seen in Syria very often, 300 men gained possession of two of the towers and crept into the city. Soon, the whole eastern army arrived, the gates were opened, and Nicephorus marched proudly into the city. Antioch, the third most important city in the empire of Augustus, Trajan and Diocletian, was recaptured after being in Arab hands for 332 years. The great general found time during his escapades of conquest to write texts on the arts of war. The Preceptor Militaria and others described how to fight battles and also how to deal with guerrilla tactics, both using them and defending against them. It's thought that his brother Leo also had a hand in the writing. Nicephorus' focus returned to Constantinople in triumph. Surely this great victory would make him more popular. Surely it would. Surely. Didn't it? Well, no it didn't. He was still booed and pelted with stones. The great soldier emperor virtually turned his palace into a castle so that he'd be safe. It was clear people were out to get him, and he'd heard a prophecy he'd be killed by one of his own citizens. It was also clear that this wasn't going to end well. In the next chapter, we'll see exactly how it didn't end well, and why the tomb in which he was buried had written on it the words, You conquered all except a woman. 
and that next chapter will be released after Christmas on Sunday the 8th of January. So, have a really great Christmas holiday, and I'll speak to you next time.